0: Now, so Glenn delighted to have you. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, and thanks for joining us a couple of weeks ago at interactive and doing the, the session with Lisa. Um, yes. What We wanted to do is chat uh, a little bit about uh, you and the backstory and and, and kind of how we got to uh, Lavongo and, and, uh, and then a little bit of then maybe a little bit of future gazing as well. So let's let's go back right to the start. And we uh, grew up as uh, the youngest of six. Uh, tell us a little bit about about those early days
1: well i uh, I did grow up as the youngest of six and it was a very uh a lot of influence from uh both of my parents uh, My mother was very creative my dad uh, uh was uh, on the road selling much of much of the time and and so being the youngest of six you 're instantly competitive You yeah, right. have to fight for food and everything else <laughs> and uh uh there's a lot of uh, hand-me-downs and you're you're drafted into things that older people are doing you know because sometimes if you're playing uh, a game you need a fourth person it doesn't matter how old or young they are so i grew up in a, a great competitive family it was kind of split between uh initially the family was from the midwest from st louis and chicago and then when i was in fourth grade we moved to the east coast uh, my uh, my dad had gone through kind of starting in St. Louis, then received the big promotion to Chicago. And then after a number of years there, the bigger promotion to New York. So I was kind of carted along. And I grew up really on the East Coast of the United States and um, spent a lot of time over years in New Jersey and Washington, DC and Pennsylvania, right. where I went to school. And uh, uh, spent three years at a little school in Pennsylvania called Bucknell University, um, just under a year at the London School of Economics, LSE, and uh, ultimately went back to Oxford for a degree in social anthropology, um, which a lot of people say, what's a social anthropologist doing? Right, right. super- <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it turns out that social anthropology is the study of how cultures change. Okay. And, um, right. You know, years ago, there were a variety of reasons why they changed. I studied the Amish uh, in Pennsylvania, and I actually lived with the Amish embedded for time, no electricity, no screens on the windows. Very interesting time. Kind of a time warp being thrown back 100 years, and uh, that was fascinating. Um, But studying how cultures change. Today, the way we change cultures is with technology. And so you don't need a better example of that than Facebook, which is you, we've all heard about the, you know, the revolutions that Facebook has caused. We understand the negative sides of Facebook relative to political issues and the like. And so, but technologies generally are how we, how we change cultures most quickly um, today. So it actually turned out to be great grounding. I didn't plan it that way, but it turned out that way. So that's a little bit about, uh, about my background. and uh, That was your, and curiosity, my, your curiosity was
0: towards that. Uh, that, that was what, when you were, what, what prompted you to go to Oxford to do a master's in social anthropology.
1: Well, I think there were a few things. First of all, curiosity is a great word because, um, and I give my mother a lot of credit, she never said no to anything. And uh, she encouraged us to try a whole variety of things, things that we as parents today would never allow our children to do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know I'm reminded of uh, early on I was very interested in solar energy and so she let me climb up on the roof, cut a hole in the roof, build a solar uh, panel up there. It never worked. The roof never no stopped me after that. But, but it must have been 25 years later I started a solar company which ended up being very successful and we sold it to Southern California Edison and people said, what do you know about solar? And the answer was not much. But I referenced well early in my career. I did a project <laughs> on solar. Never mentioned what it was. So, uh, but there was a there was a lot of of encouragement. And uh, my oldest brother is a a very well known entrepreneur. Has started many businesses, and I think the family is very entrepreneurial. And and that came I, I attribute much of that to. Uh, to my mother. Um, so, you know, that curiosity and, and that curiosity as well, um, relative to again, how things change how we use technology in different ways. Um, I've always been very curious. And even today, I, I'm a known consumer of lots of magazines of all different areas, simply searching for ideas, better ideas. So I spend a lot of time there.
2: Well, look, I uh, I was going to ask a question, but you it's not to be answered now, but what was going on in my mind when you said that was, what did you do in the winter when the hole was there in the roof? But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs>
0: the conversation could go in many directions. <laughs> I, want to, I want to come back to the Amish for a second, because we were talking about technology changing culture, but that that's a great example, right? So tell us a little bit uh, before we kind of move on, but tell us a little bit about kind of what you learned from the time you spent with them, and and specifically around technology.
1: Well, you know, it's very interesting because the Amish, like many cultures, are are very misunderstood. So people, one, don't understand that they actually do a very good job of managing technology. There's a statement they refer a lot to the Bible, and there's a statement that says, the devil often comes dressed as an angel. So they won't allow their kids to watch TV. And they say, well, we won't do that because watching TV. Somebody else is putting ideas in their head, not us. And so that's a perfect example. Similarly, with technology, they won't allow their kids to have cars. But what do cars do? They allow the kids to go places and get out of the supervision of the culture. So again, it's this idea of how do we appropriately use this? Now, they will use a car that someone else uh, drives to get somewhere. So they're very astute in how they manage technology, perhaps better than us, because what we do is we do massive experiments. We say, let's give everybody a phone, or I, I love their, the idea of you know, who knew that putting a little camera on a phone would so change everything we do. And yet yeah. it has in ways that we can't even imagine uh, or couldn't have imagined. Yeah. So I think you know, it was very interesting to watch how they were very thoughtful about what comes into their culture, what the impact is on their children, on each of them, on families. You know, if you're in a horse and buggy, you can't ever go too far away, and you're always <laughs> close to someone you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very different cultural kind of uh, phenomenon than what we we have today.
0: Yeah, fascinating. It's fascinating. We could we could dig into this. Like, uh, you got my you got my curiosity up, but. <laughs> Just in terms of time, I want to switch gears a little bit. So, so moving from Oxford and anthropology into the world of healthcare, maybe, maybe just take us on that step of the journey.
1: Sure. Um, well, when I came back from Oxford, I always assumed that I was not going to go and join a large company. I started off in, I mentioned uh, solar. I was very interested in how do we use technology to improve the world. And I always thought about three areas. One was energy, and so that's why solar was interesting. And I started off in a small company in Pittsburgh using alternative energy technologies. And then I spent a little time in Washington, had some experiences in the government, in the White House, and and at the Office of Management and Budget. And then I really launched my business career, um, first with my oldest brother, who had started a company using technology to automate how we manage uh, cars property and casualty insurance so for cars damaged or lost but that was essentially taking a handwritten process um, of writing an estimate on a damaged car and automating it
0: right. and
1: so i saw the early use of technology of automation of data science to make it faster and better And from there, I jumped to saying, what could we automate in healthcare?" And we were writing literally more than 3 billion prescriptions in the U.S. And we joke about, um, and I think this is true all around the world, how poor doctor's handwriting is and how many errors there are, we all know, in writing and written prescriptions and drug interactions. And so I said, what if we could do the same thing we did for the property and casualty insurance business? and automate these 3 billion illegible pieces of paper and really save lives. And the Institute of Medicine had put out a report that said that each year 6,000 Americans die from preventable medication errors. And I said, gosh, we could save 6,000 lives. That's amazing. Every year, and no one even talks about this. And we can make the process better and faster and easier. So we did that, and that's where I really became familiar with healthcare. And then my youngest son, Sam, uh, was diagnosed with diabetes when he was eight. And uh, I did what most parents would do. I went to the hospital and he looked up at me and said, dad, can you fix this? And I made the commitment that I would, little did I know what I was committing to. And uh, I joined the board of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation and I started to take all of my charitable giving from my own foundation and focus that on research to find a cure. and uh, But what I figured out very quickly was two things. One, it was going to take a long time. So we had to focus on keeping people healthy until we found a cure. Um, today, there's more adults with juvenile diabetes than there are right. children. Right. Um, now, that's a good thing because we've kept them alive. Um, But that means the problem is going to take a while. And second, I understood how unfair the system was, how hard we made it for people with chronic conditions like diabetes to stay healthy. And again, um, many other countries do a much better job of keeping people healthy. But particularly in the US, we wait until there's an acute problem to try to solve it instead of doing preventive care. And I said, we ought to make it easier. We ought to make strips free, the little strips that you use to prick your finger and check your blood sugar. Why Why do we charge people and put barriers to using those? Why do we have copay? Made no sense. So I said, what if we made strips free? And people looked at me like I was from another planet.
0: Yeah.
1: And then other people looked at me because they said, we make a lot of money selling those strips and you want to give them away free. And But that's what we did at Lavango. So to fast forward, in between there, there was uh, one or two stops. One was at a company called uh, Enterprise Systems. There we were automating both supplies and resources at hospitals, but also we were automating the process into operating rooms, and believe it or not, they... Open someone's chest to do heart surgery and they'd realize they didn't have all the right supplies. Seems unimaginable. And someone would jump in a car, drive somewhere to get something while someone's chest was open. And again, unbelievable. But you solve that with simple checklists to say, before you start, check to make sure you have all the right supplies. Went from there to all scripts. That's where we did electronic prescriptions, became the largest in the world. And then from electronic prescriptions, people said, "If you're doing that well, why don't you help us with electronic?" What were then called electronic medical records. What we we then changed the name to electronic health records, and built the largest electronic health record company outside the four walls of the hospital. Um, we had about fifty thousand practices when I left, and uh, and again. From their transition to something that would impact people directly, which was Lavongo. So that's the quick story. Maybe not so quick. <laughs> no, <that's> not <laughs> perfect.
0: Um, there's a lot of a lot of more detail behind that that you didn't go into. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of the stops on that journey was setting up Seven One. So so maybe because you guys have quite a unique model and Lavongo is, is quite a unique story. So maybe. Could just talk us through a little bit about that kind of the motivation for 7-1 and then how Livongo kind of came into
1: being. Sure well I first of all I, I would say that uh, I've been very fortunate in my career to be surrounded by um, a lot of wonderful people and uh, you know nothing great is accomplished by individuals it's always a team sometimes you know one individual gets focused on or gets to take the question but it's always a team and and uh, Lee Shapiro, who was our chief financial officer at Lavongo, has been by my side um, for 25 years. Um, Everything from running marathons together to uh, uh, to building businesses together. And we uh, have, while we were running other companies, at night, some people are in the afternoon, some people are on weekends, some people can play golf or do other things. Our habit, what we love to do, is build businesses. And as we built some of these businesses, I mentioned, you know, everything from restaurants to solar energy to shoe companies to, you know, just magic business to all kinds of things. Um, as we did all those businesses, um, we needed a vehicle, a place to put them, because people who would invest with them. With us, when we would give them the money back, they'd say, "Well, just keep the money, put it into the next investment, keep it in the fund," and we didn't have a fund. <laughs> so, <clears throat> we created a fund. And interesting, the the seven wire story is about connecting um, the U.S. to Europe, to uh, in that case, to uh, Great Britain, and they tried. You know with cables to do it and they tried two cables and four cables and the magic came for reasons no one quite understood with seven wires when they finally put seven wires they were able to open up this whole new world of transatlantic communication and that drove enormous amounts of commerce and the like so that's where the name came from but um, we we have been fortunate our first fund, Seven Wire existed, and we have a number of Seven Wire funds, but our first major healthcare fund, we're just under three years in, and it's been very successful. We've, we've returned uh, in three need- years, 93% of the money, and we're, we're up uh, three, I think about three X with 11 companies left to harvest. So it's a pretty exciting undertaking.
0: It's a very unique model, you know, Two guys running marathons, creating companies, and 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 building them up from scratch is not the traditional. Go and raise five hundred million and, and and splash it around. So, so but I guess it, it's as as a builder and operator, it's it, it's very suited. It's hard to scale though, right? Because there's only well,
1: scale. we don't want to scale it. I, I think the issue is. You know, we said we limited the fund at 100 million. We'll limit the next fund at 100 million. Great. You know, our magic, if you will, is that we get hands on with every company. We say to companies, if you don't want us involved, don't take our money, because that's what we do. So we open up our networks each uh, uh, each weekend. I have Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. I have office hours. And I usually meet with the companies for about an hour. Um, and we just discuss issues but every single week so if you think about that some of the companies get you know 50 hours of focus which no venture Mm -hmm. firm does but we do that because we're constantly across a whole variety of challenges sharing ideas opening up contacts and the like and that's what we think helps the companies be successful and if they're not being successful it helps them pivot to what they should be doing. So uh, I will mention, by the way, that uh, someone had taken a picture of us on mile 17 of the marathon, and I was still holding a list that we were discussing on mile 17. No way. Um, (laughs) I was pointing to a list.
0: This one. one. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. yeah, It's a fantastic model, and we work a lot with Robert Garber, you know, and Robert has been really a phenomenal sounding board for me as the CEO to you know it's very rare to find people who have been operators who who can then move into an advisory role because you know by definition you're used to driving the car and it's very hard to sit in the passenger seat while the driver's driving the car off a cliff or going into a wall so it's quite a unique skill to be able to be an advisor as well as an operator and obviously it's been usually successful in the long ago. so maybe we'll change gears a little bit I'm just conscious of time because I wanted to get what we really want to dig into Livongo Teladoc and a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, and Chandler will kind of leave some of the questions here but uh, take us through the initial thoughts of oh yeah why, where this came from, where was the inish, initial spark for the merger and, and then we'll take some more.
1: Sure. Well I think like all good ideas they come from the members or the users. And we, uh, we were fortunate to build an incredible model at Livongo, and that was always focused on our members. Uh, members first, that's where we start every conversation. How do we improve the experience? And interestingly, um, about a third of our employees at Livongo have a chronic condition or have a direct family member who has a chronic condition. So there's this passion, there's this understanding of the challenges that our members face every day. And so everything we've done at Lavongo has been about our members and creating not just a better experience, but a different kind of experience. And you know, I think about like the, when the iPhone came out, no one said it was better than another phone. They said, this is completely different than anything we've seen. And that's how people think about Lavango. So when you think about that experience, you know people would call us and they actually trusted us. We were there 24 by seven. And again, going back to that social anthropology, when someone called, we didn't say, can I help you? Because that means that I have the answer and you need help. We'd say, what do you need? So the minute I say, what do you need? You're in charge. You tell me what you need. And everything about the experience was designed to make it easier and better and different than what they had seen. So fast forward, we started getting calls when people were saying to us, oh, I'm calling, and it's 1 AM, and I think I have a sinus infection. And we would say, well, why are you calling us? We do chronic Mm. conditions. They'd say, well, number one, you're the only ones who are answering the phone at this hour. (laughs) You're the only ones who I can trust And number three, you actually solve problems for me. So you know, the more calls we received, we realized there was a need we weren't fulfilling because we have to take care of the whole person. We can't say, oh, I only do this and sorry if you have this other problem. In fact, we started with diabetes and very quickly we realized that 70% of the people with type two diabetes also have hypertension. If we didn't address their hypertension, then they were still gonna feel bad. And so addressing their diabetes wasn't enough. Similarly, we knew a lot of those people had weight management issues. A lot of those people had mental health issues. So putting together that package. So it was one, it was very focused on what our members needed. And second, the buyers, our clients said, listen, Glenn, this is great, but we can't have five different apps and five different coaches and." It's a terrible experience for our members, our employees, our dependents. So can you fix that? Can you have one experience, one place to go where whatever you need, we'll take care of it. You know, and all of us have had that issue where it's the middle of the night, we have one question. We don't wanna go to the ER. That's not a good economic decision. It's not a good decision for you. And now today we know that walking into a hospital, you're exposed to a lot of other people who may be sick when you didn't even go there sick. And now you're exposed to that. So how do we create that experience? So we started to look at that. And as we identified potential candidates for acquisition, for merger, along comes Teladoc. And Jason and I looked at each other and we said, well, this is a perfect fit. You're the leader in your space, we're the leader in our space, number one. Number two, there's only 25% client overlap, which was fascinating. Yeah. I assumed most of the innovative clients would come to us and they'd go to them, but these markets are so big. Yeah. Each of us have 75% selling opportunity. They were in more than 50 countries internationally. We wanted to go international, so we would have had to do a lot of work that accelerated that. They have a base of 70 million people who have access to Teladoc. And we know that probably half of those people have chronic conditions. So we said, imagine, while we're growing very rapidly, um, exposing Livongo to 70 million people, exposing Livongo to people around the world, much sooner than we would have. So my goal has always been, how can we help people, more and more people stay healthy? This was the fastest route to do it. And when you put the companies together, um, amazing fit, no product overlap, completely comp- complementary. Yeah. We were great at data science; they needed more data science, um, you know. And and it just fit, and so it came together very quickly.
2: Yeah, I think it really hit the nail on the head. Things we spoke about a few years ago, you know, so many point solutions, and nobody really wants to partner with all of them. And it looks like we have we're already starting to address a lot of that. Um, I'm sure you've read a lot and there's so much conjecture on what this partnership means for the industry, right? Have we propped up? Is there immense pressure now on, you know, the valuation of companies or does this mean platform plays here to stay? Um, What in your words does this partnership mean for the healthcare industry as a whole? Well,
1: first of all, many of our would be competitors and other players in the industry have been very gracious in writing me thank you notes to say, thank you for helping our (laughs) valuation. So so I think what it means is, uh, look, this is, you know, this is kind of what the future is going to look like. And that is, it's platforms that have a whole person experience. You know, we have really coined this new phrase, which is consumer focused virtual care. And that's really what we're talking about. It's consumer-focused. I would say consumer-driven. Yeah. Um, and our consumer-centric is another way to say it. It's focused on the the health consumer. And it's virtual care. And that means it's really saying wherever you are, we'll meet you there. So if you walk into your house and you want to talk to Alexa, say, uh, Alexa, tell me what my Lavango." blood pressure is. And Alexa will tell you, if you're wearing an Apple watch or any other watch, if you're using a Fitbit, if you're going to a Higgy station, um, if wherever you are, um, we'll be there with services that make it easier for you to stay healthy. And that's really the vision. But it goes beyond that. You know, it's interesting when Travelocity came along, many of us started to use it. What people didn't understand is many travel agents started to use it in their offices because it was an easier user interface and better information than they had in their own systems. Well, fast forward. When the teledoc of the future, when a physician is using our system, the combined teledoc livongo system, um, she will actually look at a screen and she will not only see the person like I'm seeing each of you, but down the right-hand side She'll see real time what's happening in your body, what's your blood pressure, what's your blood sugar. Um, She'll see that you stepped on the scale that morning. And not only know your real time weight, there'll be an analysis that says, well, um, this person gained, you notice how I didn't say you gained, this person gained a pound a month over the last 12 months. It's kind of boiling a frog, right? You didn't notice because it's only a little bit. But it's just like blood pressure. Blood pressure isn't exactly where your blood pressure is. It's what direction is it moving. So it'll do the trend analysis. It'll have their medications up there. So the physician can look and say, should we keep using these? Should we discontinue them? And it'll do an analysis to say, here's two or three things to suggest to the patient. That's this vision that we've looked at for years. When we built electronic health records, we said, We want to make them make the physician smarter because we can't replace the physician's empathy. We can't replace her intelligence. Um, But what we can do is make her or make him better by presenting real-time information. They don't have to search through an electronic health record, 22 screens. They don't have to go to paper files. It's all right in front of them. So I think what's going to happen is not only will Telehealth visits get higher quality. But I think you're going to see people using TeleDoc Livongo actually for office visits. They're going to pull it up. And even though you're sitting there, they're going to be using that screen because it's so comprehensive and it's real time. There's there's nothing else out there like what we're building. And this isn't in the future. This is months away. So that's what's pretty exciting.
0: What do you think the barriers are? Because that vision of, you know, I think we all kind of believe in that vision of consumer empowered, consumer driven, like that's the only way we're going to fundamentally change the system. But there's lots of barriers, right? So what do you think are the the real kind of short term barriers to realizing that vision?
1: Well, let me start by saying um, that if there's anything good that comes out of coronavirus, and I believe there will be some good. One, I'm very hopeful, we haven't seen it yet, particularly with this administration, but I'm hopeful that we realize that we are all one in health. So we can't keep part of the population unhealthy and another part healthy. And and many of our counterparts uh, uh, across the pond have already realized that you need a basic level of health. I'm not suggesting we need to go to a Bernie system or anything else but we need to keep our population healthy. We're all one in health. Second, it has accelerated the use of digital technology to make healthcare available 24 by seven, to understand that a big part of healthcare can be digital and we can provide, and the beauty of digital is it's completely abundant and free. What I mean by that is anybody in the world can now Google something and get the same answer And get smarter. And that's so powerful. Before, you had to go to a library, you had to own a book, you had to, those were all cost barriers. So we can make so much in healthcare, and I'm thinking particularly in mental health, so much of that can become available across the world. So that's one thing. Second, you know, we know about the terrible loss of life of coronavirus, we know about the economic damage, and we're just learning about that. But the biggest issue will be the mental health issues. And there again, so many people's lives have been changed, have been destabilized. We can use digital technology like MyStrength and like BetterHelp, both that are provided through our combined company to help millions of people. And we'll do that. In fact, our recent announcement with Magellan, Magellan Health serves one out of every 10 Americans. And now Livongo will become the digital entry point for those people to say, it's the middle of the night, I can't reach my therapist, but I can go online and start getting assistance and start getting feedback real time, anytime. And so, so again, I see great promise coming from you know what was a bad thing and, but we've got to leverage that we've got to use that. So what are the barriers? Um, I you know the good news is that some of those barriers, lack of adoption have been knocked down. you know it would have taken years to get physicians uh, to adopt uh, telehealth. We were at something like five to seven percent it flipped so we went to less than 10 percent to 90% was telehealth. Now it's going to settle in at, let's say, 40 to 50%. That will be 10 times what it was only six months ago. But we've also shown the healthcare system and many of our most innovative leaders that, wow, change is possible, and change is possible quickly. No one ever believed that. And now they said, well, you know what? When we have to rally, we actually can rally. Nobody believed that. So now we're starting to see some of the most innovative systems start to do things that it would have taken years. And you mentioned Sevenwire. We're focused on the informed, connected health consumer. Virtually every one of our companies in the fund is up hundreds of percent based on adoption because people are saying, hey, there's a better way. And we've just been given license to go out and do it. I think that's gonna have dramatic impact because we aren't going back. The genie is out of the bottle and we aren't going backwards. So I think a lot of those barriers will be knocked down. The biggest barrier of course is how we pay our physicians. And we have to get, and that's in the US, and we have to get to a better, better model. Around the rest of the world, a big barrier is utilization of this technology. And again, we've seen that come up, but we can do both better and the opportunity for improvement we have years that we can get healthcare with no increase at all in expense if we rapidly move to digital if we rethink how we're providing it so so that's what i see i mean that's but we need the leadership that's the other missing component we need healthcare leaders to step up and say this is our opportunity we're taking it right now let's not as, as was said by so many people take credit for it. Let's not let a good crisis go to waste.
2: Yeah, you, you pretty much answered the questions I was gonna ask you about how this is impacting some of your other companies and that's great. The other thing I noticed besides you not asking, telling both of us that we up weight had increased was that you also used, uh, which I love, a default female physician. So, <laughs> which we always, we always tend to say he so, but it was it was nice, refreshing. To hear a she instead? Well, you know, we have
1: an initiative uh, at Levango called She Powers Health. And the, the truth of the matter is that women around the world uh, make 80% of all the healthcare decisions. And so healthcare has to catch up. We are fortunate to have a number of uh, highly qualified uh, female board members. We have our, our leadership team, our president, um, Dr. Jennifer Schneider, of course, is a noted healthcare leader, one of the hundred most influential leaders in the in the world, and uh, so that's exciting. And then our leadership team is filled with highly qualified women, and we're working very hard to add minorities. And why? Not just because it's the right thing to do, because it's better business. We need the people who are making the decisions to help us design the products. And we need all of that reflected. So we see, and it's always been the case, we see diversity as a strength um, across our business. So, you know, whether it's liberal, conservative, none of that matters. It's better business to have that kind of leadership. And so we've been we've been very aggressive and focusing on those issues, which tend to be the right social issues as well.
0: Yeah, we measure we measure our performance based on the. The amount of time we let our guests speak and and so i think i feel like we've done a good job here we've done well today <laughs> Got out of the way and we've we heard such an interesting backstory and then also such a positive view and you know, i think as we said a couple of weeks ago glenn you know this time last year or thereabouts we were talking about Lavongo ipoing and that was the big news and now 12 months later we're talking about the the merger which is the big news so uh, just congratulations to you and, and Lee and the whole team and as as all your competitors are congratulating you for helping you know raise the raise the bar i think it is it is fantastic results what we normally do at this point is ask our guests if they weren't doing if you weren't the executive chairman of Lavongo, what would you be doing and i guess it's a it, it's a good question now given the transition but uh, Usually, we usually mean it in terms of if in, a, in an alternative universe, if you weren't building companies, what would you be doing?
1: Well, I think uh, first and foremost, look, I'm I'm uh, very very fortunate. I have three incredible kids, um, and uh, uh, my oldest son yesterday asked his girlfriend to marry him. So that was uh, oh,
0: okay. Uh, okay. Uh, breaking news here.
1: <laughs> and, uh, Breaking news now announced and. Uh, and I, had, I was able to spend the day before between meetings uh, going to virtually every jewelry store uh, I felt like in the, in the world, but maybe it was just in this area to find the right ring. So, um, one, you know, family and my kids are very important to me. Um, and, uh, but look, I love what I do. And what we're doing is there's nothing more important, no problem more important in the whole world than healthcare. Because if we aren't healthy, nothing else matters and then right after that comes education and that's that's the secret around the world the more people we educate the better world we're going to have the more solutions we're going to get and so those two things are where you know I spend all my time and it's cuz for me it's a vacation it's fun and so I'm not going anywhere I expect to continue to do that and uh, and you know but that is that's a, a hobby as well i mean we just have great companies that we're building um, in a variety of areas and a variety of industries and, and, uh, that a little bit of, uh, a training an occasional, uh, Guinness in Dublin and, uh, some ice cream that all makes the world go. Well.
0: <laughs> That's the perfect combination. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: It's not at the same time.
1: That's right. That's right. That's
0: right. <laughs> well, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, it's okay to talk to you, and thanks for all that you do in getting these stories out and helping to share the information, so we we appreciate that.
0: Like like you, we enjoy it, so thanks again. Thank you.
1: Super, thank
0: you.